The content discussed in the Left Behind series and therefore this podcast includes emotional trauma, human suffering, extreme violence, gore, as well as hurtful caricatures and stereotypes of marginalized groups, and is in no way reflective of the host's personal views or beliefs. But we beeped out the cuss words in case you want to listen in front of your mom. Left Behind is a multimedia franchise that started with a series of 16 best-selling religious novels by Tim LaHaye and Jerry B.J. by Tim LaHaye and Jerry The future has come to pass. Hey there, everybody. Welcome to another episode of I Survived the Rapture. We're that podcast that slogs our way through the Left Behind novel series so you don't have to. I'm your lapsed evangelical Shane Bazell. And I'm your ecumenical fanboy, Gavin Russell. And we are here, finally, on our Off the Record for Book 8, The Mark, The Beast Takes Possession. We finally finished it. We are rounding the corner into the final third of this book series now. Gavin, how you feeling, bud? Uh, a lot better than the last one. I'll say I'll yeah. say that. Yeah, like, all right, so what was the last one? Any, the Indwelling. Indwelling. Yeah. <laughs> You've so, already forgotten the title. Listen, dude, we put this we put these books in the trash can. I tried to just, you know, delete all of the information from it uh, as much as I can. Okay, but how much of this one do you actually feel like deleting? Because I'm I may be speaking out of turn here, but I feel like you probably like this one better than quite a few of them that we've read. Yeah, dude, like, this is... I don't want to quite call it yet, because I want to give us, like, you know, because we usually kind of, like, reveal more kind of information or, like, you know, deeper analysis on, like, uh, the off the record, but, like, this is one of the better ones. Had me going the entire time. The only thing that really took me out of the enjoyment was, one, again, just, you know, par for the course, the bad writing, and two, just some of the, you know, tugging at some uh, current events that are unsavory. But other than that, other Left Behind books, like, when I get to about read through two or three, I'm like, dear God, get me out of this podcast. But this one, I'm like, okay, yeah. Like, I'll, I, I'm, I'm happy to read this one a few more times, because there some genuinely neat moments okay well cool um i also didn't think it was terrible um i did enjoy more of it than i did of the indwelling um i think that i'm still a little hung up on how much fun the end of indwelling was mm -hmm. but you're right this is objectively better right um i don't think we're back in like early book territory um i think that this is kind of a middling entry but like on the better side yeah. Um, the things that worked for me, as I said in previous episodes of this particular book, I think the pacing was just better. Yeah. I think that the way that the story is being told, and I don't know if this is Jerry growing as a writer, I don't want to kind of patronize him that way because he was already an established author mm -hmm. when this was happening. I think he's just sort of finding his groove now, which is weird because I feel like this is part of where the story starts to get away from him. So that is a negative thing. I think that the story's going off into some weird directions. Not that all this series hasn't been weird. Like the whole thing's <laughs> been fucking weird. I think that it's starting to get away from him because I think Tim is giving him less to work with. Mm -hmm. The whole Operation Eagle thing that they are setting up I don't want to spoil anything, but I don't think that it has the same 
quality tension drama. It's not as engaging as I think a lot of the cloak and dagger GC stuff was the whole series up until now. Okay, I get that. As we go into kind of a third act, um, you know, or a fourth quarter, whichever one you want to call it, however you want to divide them up, I don't think that the way that the books are being written now and what the stakes are really match up the same way. Yeah, I get you. And like, I I did find in this one a few ways, like with the actual introduction of the mark, even though that was a little bit sloppy at times, that is one of the biggest uh, downfalls is like some of how the mark is handled mechanically is a little bit dumb or unengaging. And even the way they do it gives it a little bit more tension than uh, we experienced in the last book but it still could have been done a little bit better okay so i want to use that as a jumping off point to ask you about the mark itself because i remember as a kid being in walmart so the walmart down the street from our house whenever a new left behind book would come out it would get a full end cap display near the front of the store Like it would be stacks on stacks of hard covers of these books with like cardboard cutouts of Tim and Jerry. The cover art would be there. It would be a little plot summary on one side, basically a cube of left behind books just sitting out on an end cap as you walked into the store. Mm -hmm. So the launch of these books in the town in the South where I lived was kind of an event. Yes. Um, And this wasn't like Barnes and Noble. Like we weren't going to like a midnight release or anything. But the fact that it was at a Walmart and was such a big deal, like really felt like something. And I would see it when we would go to the checkout counter, like, and I would see them and go, man, I want to read that. Right. Mm -hmm. This particular book, when it came out, I was way further back in the series. I was probably on book one or book two. And I remember seeing this cover and we've talked about it before with like the yellow and the circuitry and the eyeball and thinking, man, I can't wait till I get to that one. Mm hmm. It did not land for me the way that I thought it would when I initially read it, and that still kind of holds up. Okay. How do you feel about this being the book where the Mark of the Beast is front and center? Did it do what you thought it was going to do? Kind of, but also not really. Like, first, like, you know, the trope of, okay, it's a biochip, essentially. Like, okay, because like, I was I was thinking, yeah, like, so as far as, like, what the mark was, just based on, like, what I'd heard, you know, just, you know, every evangelical I, I ran into that if you brought this up, they'd be like, oh, it's going to be a vaccine or biochip. That, that tracked. But as far as, like, the mechanics of, okay, you take the mark and you're just dead forever, you can't really have both marks except under like certain circumstances. And even that's like really limited. I don't know. It just, it didn't even entirely seem like they knew entirely what the mark of the beast was. And they were just kind of like flying by the sea of their pants trying to be like, oh, it's really bad. And it, it means you like Satan. Yeah. And they call them loyalty marks mm-hmm. in this one. And that's something that I've seen in a lot of conspiracy literature about the end times and when i say literature i mean more like conspiracy blog posts Mm -hmm. and like thought (laughs) leaders like tim lahaye who believe in the illuminati and who believe in this stuff talking about it saying that oh yeah it is a mark of loyalty to the regime of the antichrist one of the things that they didn't talk about as much is the buying and selling thing yeah like i thought that would have been way more featured but it wasn't right because they even like had 
like plot lines in previous books where they were preparing for that yeah. to a degree, right? And but that that was again a nothing burger. They yeah. don't visit it. And I know, like, I think we said at some point in the episodes that like we can't fully expect them to just go into like the full blown like economic deconstruction of like the co-op. But at the same time, a little bit of that would be you cool. can't expect them to do that and still reach as much of a mainstream audience as yeah. they reach. Cause like, if you think about it, there's a lot of like really big fantasy series that do that. Like yeah. long running fantasy series that they're all about details and world building and everything from the economics to the government, to the societies that these science fiction or fantasy books are building. That ain't what Jerry and Tim right. are here to do. This isn't a uh, Frank Herbert's left behind. <laughs> You're right. That, you know, I was trying to think of an example and I guess Dune is a perfect one. Like yeah. they don't have long diatribes about the politics and the great houses and the economic systems and which planets provide which raw materials to which other planets and why that's important. And right. All that. Yeah. Like each, each sub region of the world would like Frank Herbert would have like had like just paragraphs on like how their economy works in relation to the other ones i feel like there's somebody on this planet and they probably have a blog somewhere that like maybe has done that you know they've got the map of the 10 regions of the world and they're like and this is how they interact and this is how many cell soul towers there are and this is what frequency they use and all this kind of stuff like the guy who has his bound with a three ring binder white papers of the left behind tabletop RPG that he never got to publish. Shane, don't say these things. We speak this thing into existence. <laughs> that guy on that Facebook page is going to do this now. Well, We've unleashed it into the world and left behind the tabletop RPG will come out, but he'll not, he won't get anyone to play it with him. Look, no I'm going to, I'm going to quote Kevin Smith here. It costs me nothing to encourage an artist. And I can't blame them for doing that, right? Like, I see these kinds of airport thrillers, you know, and we keep calling them airport novels. And I feel like we say that with a little bit of derision mm -hmm. because they're supposed to be kind of turn your brain off and just read it fiction. Right? Yeah. I think they have the same job as like a, a Hollywood blockbuster. Yeah. Right. You got to get in, tell your story in two and a half hours and get out. Yeah. Like, obviously, longer runtime than two and a half hours, but the reading equivalent of two and a half hours, because I don't know if we've ever talked about how big the margins are oh, in yeah, these dude. books. Like these books have crazy wide margins. Like the page count is massively inflated. Like yeah. this ain't Lord of the Rings. Like these are thick hardcover books, but the margins are like an inch and a half and the text is very big and like 1.5 space. Oh yeah. Like for like, cause if I'm recalling like for back from episode one, how long it took me, because like I had, because uh, I did one more reading before we went on mic. It took me an hour to read a third of that book. It's not like super dense material. And I think that we get a lot of mileage out of splitting them up into three episodes. Yeah. Like, and I think that it's both telling that we can get through the whole story in three episodes, three, you know, hour and a half ish episodes, but also have time to riff and do bits and tell stories and kind of goof off mm -hmm. for that amount of the time too. So I don't have as much criticism of the writing in this particular book as I normally would, but there is one specific thing that came to mind when I was sort of thinking about what we were going to talk about today. Okay. I don't know that having all the big evil guys sitting in a room, Legion of Doom style, kind of discussing the mark and their evil plans 
is the best way and the most interesting way to get that bit of world building across. Okay, because like I've been listening to today, me and you both have like the uh, the last podcast um, boys did a two parter on Mike Wernke. I recommend you ch- check it out. But like, if you're gonna have like a round table of your evil guys ham it up like like have like you know satanic rituals going on in there stuff like that yeah they were really kind of sterile yeah now i will tell you just wait okay it does get weirder um i'm not gonna say it's full out like they're in black robes and like you know drawing pentagrams in blood and stuff like that but some of the evil villain meetings do get more weird okay as the books go forward but it's never quite to that level. And in this book, they are pretty sterile. Um, you get some of the kind of esoteric, mystic, like Luciferian stuff with Nikolai wanting his uh, office to be all glass and open to the stars and stuff like that, which were some neat points. Mm-hmm. But I got enough problems with the characterization of Nikolai now anyway. Yeah. Um. So I'm going to throw that one to you. How do you feel about new Nikolai? As we've talked a little bit about before, like, he's just really, like, you've taken all of his intelligence away, and now he is just comic book, like, oh, yes, we're going to nuke them. We're going to destroy them. Does it feel hollow somehow? Yeah. Because there's a part of me that loves a hammy villain. Dude, I can't get enough of a hammy villain. I think we were literally just talking before I started recording about how much I love Dio Brando from JoJo's Bizarre Adventure. Yeah. He is one of my favorite villains, and he is a honey-baked ham. But you gotta cook the ham right. Right, and for some reason, Nikolai has the potential to be a Dio. Yeah. Um, but he's not. He's literally indwelt by Satan and he can't even be cool. Yeah. It, it seems like as soon as they made that transition, Nikolai became stupider, even though he's indwelt by a thousands of year old entity, the embodiment of evil. But he's dumb. But they don't even try to play with that. Yeah. Like, if you had the thousands of years old entity who can't open a PDF. Yeah. You know, they don't play with his age. They don't play with him being out of touch. I did kind of give them Nikolai being manic as being uncomfortable in a human body. He never sleeps. That's okay. But they never make a full commitment to what this new character is now. He just goes from the suave, smooth talking, never uses a contraction, politician that can sway the world to generic mustache twirling evil guy. I don't feel like this Nikolai has a personality outside of evil. And even his evil stuff isn't interesting. Like like we had that one bit where like he he killed a guy for like leaking information on a whim even though that was an evil act and that's meant to the reader to show like oh look he doesn't even care about those in in his like inner circle that still felt like a waste and they could have done that cooler even if it was just like hey you gotta kill a guy for leaking information Uh, loose lips sink ships even that wasn't done well the way that he kind of spun and then killed someone or had them killed because it happens off screen he kills santiago off screen Mm -hmm. that's not even gonna hold a candle to jonathan stonegal in book one yeah that scene in book one has way more impact because it's 
the soft-spoken, gentle, uplifting Nikolai Carpathia telling the room, I'm going to murder this man, and then doing it. Yeah, and like, if, if we would have had like, you know, more of like, Nickadorf energy with, uh, with the Santiago, um, uh, I don't, I don't know what else. Is that you mean Ganondorf? Yeah, yeah, Nickadorf. Okay. <laughs> Yeah, this I thought of Tim Conway for a second. I was like, like he's he's got his knees in his shoes. Like, <laughs> no, okay, so like Ganondorf, yeah, yeah, yeah. If if they would have done like that version of Nikolai would have handled the Santiago thing better because you would have had something kind of like um Santiago. You know what happens to people that um uh, speak out of line, and then he would have just killed him himself, and and then look around the room like let this be a lesson to anyone else who um would like to speak out of turn. So, we're doing it again. We're writing a better book. I mean, we are. And I think that if you go to that level of, you know, the very soft-spoken villain who is very driven by what he believes in and he's going to remake the world and there's nothing that you can do to stop him and he will kill you without a thought. We've seen that before and you run the risk of doing Robert De Niro in The Untouchables. Mm -hmm. You've seen The Untouchables, right? Uh, no. Okay, Robert De Niro plays Al Capone, and there's a very famous scene in which he is talking to all of his lieutenants, and then he kills one with a baseball bat at a fancy dinner, very violently. It's the soft-spoken, rub your shoulders, and then I'm going to turn and kill you. It's a great scene. This doesn't have any of that energy. It's just, I am evil, everyone please worship me, I'm, I'm mad, I'm angry, and that's it. Yeah. And I, it was a massive disappointment. Like maybe as like the books go on, like at least that like his the stupidness will be overshadowed by like a little bit of just like the the amount of stuff that he does. Like as he's like getting more desperate, he's gonna do more like big boisterous things, and maybe that will make up for it. But I, I mean, I I can I'm just holding out hope here. I will say, in my opinion, there are attempts made to do what you just described. Okay. I'm going to leave it up to you as to whether or not they are successful. Okay. So no spoilers. Let's just keep moving. Okay. So that kind of brings me to what I did like about it. I don't hate the way that some of the Tribulation Force's new roles were set up. Yeah. I think the thing with Hyam is cool. Um, I think that Hattie being back in the mix is neat. Um, I like her being around. I like her presence. I like Albie. And I said that last episode. Like, I like Hyam. I like Albie. I like Hattie. Yep. I, like I like Buck kind of being back in the mix a little bit, even though he's rusty. Yep. Trying to do the journalist thing, which Zion is really the more listened to journalist out of the Tribulation Force. So Buck gets left with not a lot to do. Right. And that goes back again to the truth really isn't talked about other than it exists. Right. And I think that that's a missed opportunity, but I think that they have a lower page count and they were releasing these very quickly. Yeah. So they were being written quickly. They're getting turned and burned very quickly. You know, and you can see that sometimes in the editing mistakes that we see. Mm hmm. Um, and some of the inconsistencies that we also see, which that was the big glaring one that we remember from this one is that all of a sudden Nikolai doesn't seem to remember the guy who shot at him, right. <laughs> which I don't know if that was deliberate. I really don't think it was. Yeah. Um, especially when the rest of the room doesn't tell them. I feel like I just referred to them as them, like Venom, like it's two people. <laughs> um, but when the rest of the room doesn't tell Nikolai, hey, it was Rayford Steele, your old pilot, um, it's just a weird moment. Mm -hmm. So I think that that's also an editorial inconsistency. So we can see the speed with which these books are getting written. Yeah. I didn't hate the moments in the prison for as much as I hate what they represent and what their implications are. I don't think they were poorly written. Yeah. 
Um, I think that they were hard to read. I think they were kind of unnecessary, but that's why we put the disclaimer at the beginning of the show. It's not my favorite parts of the book, but I can agree that they at least had some emotional pathos there. Yeah. Um, that's a little redundant, but there was pathos in those scenes. I, I definitely got that too. Like they're like, again, this book upped the tension level. So like, you're not sure like, Hey, is this person going to actually make it out because, or are they get going to die? Like, what about the rest of the people in this prison? I was, I was invested. I and then when about... the answer is no, yeah, they aren't going to make it out. I think that that's good. Yeah. I think that giving them more losses as the years tick forward to the glorious appearing is a good thing. Mm -hmm. I think that is the proper choice. I think it is what's going to continue to keep people engaged. I don't see it as killing people off for like arbitrary Game of Thrones reasons. Mm -hmm. I think that it is actually the right choice to make. Make the situation seem more hopeless, make them seem more powerless, put them through more suffering so that the victory is all that much more impressive. Right, and that and that also brings me to how this book has dealt with uh, the loss of some like characters in it. Like, the David and Annie-like stuff, that got me. Like, I, I really liked it with how, like, David is having to sort through his grief, not being allowed to even, like, fully grieve because um, uh, he, Annie's not even having a funeral. Right. Like, that. that and the same thing with Zeke, Yeah, too. the same thing with Zeke, yeah. Like, all of that, like, is, is it's really, I, th I don't know, does it for me emo emotionally. Like, they're, they're playing deaths really well in this book. There is something in between the lines here. And it didn't really stick out to me until I listened to our last episode. Okay. There is a theme of men not being allowed to grieve that we see in a lot of these books. You see it with Ray. You see it with Zeke. You see it with David. You see it with Albie. You see it with multiple male characters who something bad happens to them. They lose someone and they talk about how they are not allowed to grieve. This is okay. I don't think it's an intentional theme. I think it's just something that either one of the authors is getting in there subconsciously or I don't know. Like it, it's never highlighted. Like they don't talk about it, but it appears again and again and again, like this motif, you know? Yeah, and that's kind of, I don't know, that's a bit odd because even though these books kind of like, you know, are incredibly misogynistic at parts, they do take time to Oh, they like, are incredibly misogynistic. They, they do take time now and again to be like, hey, men have feelings too, and it's okay to be man with feeling. Which I think has tinges of old men's rights activist stuff. Mm-hmm. Um, that, you know, men are kind of trapped in a societal role in which they aren't allowed to have feelings, they aren't allowed to grieve, they aren't allowed to show emotion. We talked very early, I think probably in like Nikolai or Soul Harvest, about how that is the opposite in a lot of evangelical circles that men are encouraged to cry, they are encouraged to show emotion, they are encouraged to even show physical affection to yeah. other men. Yeah. So that's an interesting point that's not entirely aligned with what I think we think about a lot of right wing political folks mm -hmm. um, that would be reading these books. Um, we would see a lot of that as just, oh, well, they're just all homophobic and they won't even like, you know, stand next to each other at the same bathroom stall, you know. Right. Um, but <clears throat> that's not really the case here. And I got to kind of give credit where credit's due, like that theme of you know, men being allowed to be in touch with their emotions can be viewed through a positive lens. Yes. Um, I went over it the last time we talked about it, about how there is also a tradition of heroic emotion within fascism, but we're not going to 
uncork that particular uh, bottle right now. Okay. Because I won't be able to put the cork back in, and this is not a longer episode. <laughs> so I want to transition here okay. and talk about the reason for the season. Let's talk about the mark. Okay, let's go. So the mark of the beast is back in the headlines, as we've said throughout this book. When you were growing up, kind of go over again for our listeners and kind of for me too, your understanding of the Mark of the Beast. Was it ever something that was brought up to you? Was it something you were worried about? Was it even a factor? Because for us, it was talked about, but it was never really something that we were supposed to be worried about because we would have been raptured by then. It came up here and again, mainly like with uh, like technological developments, um, like anytime there'd be like a new big thing, it's like, oh, it's just a matter of time now before uh you know the mark of the beast comes up and like the the community that i was in generally uh accepted that the mark of the beast was going to either be vaccine biochip or some kind of combination between the two and i i guess it was kind of like a just a, a reaction to like very uh, rapid technological development and that caused a lot of people to be scared and um, so that's kind of the concurrent it was on a very big reaction to, uh, to technology um, and considering it to be satanic I can get behind that mm-hmm. I, I know that experience let me ask you this why like where did it come from what was the goal of it who was implementing it or did it even get that far it, it, like did it, the discourse even make it there not really it didn't say who was doing it except just like those aligned with satan and those that want to serve satanism and even who that was was nebulous until i got older and they started throwing out more like oh it's george soros and stuff like that uh-huh yeah. okay so i did some research uh, over the last week and I've been looking into, you know, some articles, some aggregates about what people are saying now about the Mark of the Beast, especially as it relates to the COVID-19 vaccine. And I think in order to talk about this, we have to go back to square one. Okay. And we talk, have to talk about history. Okay. So can you grab the Bible real quick? Um, yeah. I would like to read the originating passage for the Mark of the Beast. It is going to be Revelation 13, 15 through 18. All right. <clears throat> <laughs> Revelation 15. Got to get you a phone Bible or a pocket Bible, but it just Listen, won't have I'm the same lifting. effect. Listen, I am lifting. Let's see, 15 versus what? 13 through 18. 13 through 18. Now, this is something we've seen before. We've definitely read these passages, but I want to start here to give us a good foundation. Then I saw another beast rising out of the earth. It had two horns like a lamb, and it spoke like a dragon. It exercises all authority of the first beast in its presence, and makes the earth and its inhabitants worship the first beast, whose mortal wound was healed. It performs great signs, even making fire come down from heaven to earth in front of people. And by the signs that is allowed to work in the presence of the beast, it deceives those who dwell on the earth, telling them to make an image for the beast that was wounded by the sword and yet lived. And it was allowed to give breath to the image of the beast, so that the image of the beast might even speak and might cause all those who would not worship the image of the beast to be slain. It also causes all both small and great both rich and poor, both free and slave, to be marked on the right hand or the forehead, so that no one can buy or sell unless he has the mark, that is, the name of the beast or the number of its name. 
This calls for wisdom. Let the one who has understanding calculate the number of the beast. It is the number of a man. His number is six, six, six. <laughs> Metal music. It is just the cool. It's just a cool number, yeah. man. Like, and it has all of those, you know, implications and everything. It's just fun to say six, six, six. Also, real, real quick, because like I saw in like the question and answer section that we both like face dust. Um, Viv Ivan's name first six letters is V I V I V I. It's I six, six, six. It so much. <laughs> I hate it. I hate it. I hate it. But it's there, and it's another one that they snuck in on us, and I can't believe that I didn't see that before. So, when we're reading Revelation, and we're seeing the mark of the beast, the name of the beast, and the number of his name, one of the things that I consistently ran into when pulling up sources for this episode was that anyone who is looking at the mark of the beast in the 21st century probably has a fundamentally flawed understanding of Revelation, of apocalyptic literature, of the way it was written, of why it was written, and that is an easy academic kind of go-to, right? Mm -hmm. We've talked previously previously, I think, about Gematria, right? Uh, Remind. So uh, think of it like Hebrew numerology. Yes, yes, yes. And how you can associate letters with numbers. I don't want to get into all the specifics, but ultimately, if you attach the name Nero Caesar and run it through that kind of Gematria filter, it becomes 666. Yes. Right. And if you look at the tradition of apocalyptic literature and you look at Revelation using stark and dramatic imagery to talk about a current situation, not a future one, but a current one, that's basically what we're seeing here. And a lot of biblical scholars, and I would say actually most of them would agree with this, (laughs) that John of Patmos is writing to other churches because remember how much of Revelation hangs at the very beginning on doing upkeep on all of these churches throughout Asia Minor. And I think there are a couple in some other places, but I think it's primarily Asia Minor. Then offering them encouragement through coded language in the tradition of poetic apocalyptic literature, essentially saying something that Zion says in his messages. We've already won. The future that is held for us is one in which Christ comes to punish those who would tread us underneath their boots, who would kill us and would try to turn us away from our faith. The battle is already won. Keep the faith, my brothers and sisters. May the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ be with you all. Amen. Right? Yeah. That's where you can stop with Revelation. But that's not the hand we've been dealt by looking into these books. We are looking at it the way that the audience is supposed to as prophecy. So when you look at the Mark of the Beast and the concept behind it, I personally think the way in which the Mark of the Beast has been consistently portrayed in popular media has more to do with the common understanding of it now than anything that is present in Revelation. And that goes back to something that you literally said in episode zero of this podcast. I don't know if you coined this term, but uh, I I think it'd be cooler if you did. Yeah. Pseudo Deuterocanon. That the conception of the Mark of the Beast as it exists now is almost completely invented. Mm -hmm. Now, it is present in the text, but the idea of it being some kind of biochip, the idea of it being some kind of 
vaccine, the idea of it being some kind of secret thing that is snuck in by some sort of global satanic conspiracy is an invention. Yeah. And I I think a lot of, um, since we've talked about how a lot of humans just look for patterns and stuff, that the, the core aspect of that, it has to be a number, especially in an age where everything is digital and everything, if you look at through that lens, anything could be a number. That just allows for someone that is seeking patterns to find meaning. They can attribute almost anything to technology related to the mark of the beast. And it you could try you could find some kind of justification for it within that localized thought system. When you were a kid, did you ever play the game 24? No. Okay, so it was a card game um, for math dorks where you had four numbers at like the points of the compass and you had to use the operations addition, subtraction, multiplication, division to come up with the number 24 using the numbers that you were given in a certain amount of moves. That is something that I look back on whenever I see the number play that they're doing and even the word play, you know, turning into Roman numerals from Viv Ivans's name into 666. If people, especially like your QAnon people or even back in the 80s with the satanic panic, if they want to see the pattern hard enough, they're going to see it. Yeah. Right. And one of the things that I keep seeing here, and it's to my kind of pleasant surprise, the majority of the people speaking out against the, the COVID vaccine having anything to do with the mark of the beast are pastors. Mm hmm. I actually have a quote from a USA Today article that came out um, the 27th of September, and it's called, uh, Some say COVID-19 vaccine is the mark of the beast. Is there any connection to the Bible? And USA Today uh, quotes a pastor from the Harvest Christian Fellowship Church, a guy named Greg Laurie, um, and he says the vaccines are not the mark of the beast, quote, but many Christians believe they are, thinking the world is in what the Bible calls the last days. He goes on to say, the Bible speaks of someone identified as the Antichrist. He will require people to have a mark that people will receive to buy and sell, Laurie told USA Today in an email. The COVID-19 vaccine or any vaccines have nothing to do with any of this. From a little further down in the article. In Revelation 14, we learn that those who take the mark are doomed, he said. God will not doom people for taking something unwittingly. People read erroneous comments and believe they are true. Sometimes these statements are packaged to look like Bible prophecy, he said. But they are false and misapplied because many people do not understand what the Bible actually says about these things. And this is a common refrain that I'm kind of hearing from pastors is, and to Tim LaHaye's credit, that's a phrase I never thought I'd say on this show. Even Tim is saying, this isn't going to be something that they bamboozle you with. And I think that part of the misunderstanding, at least from where I'm standing, and you can, you can kind of tell me what you think. There is an impulse amongst people on the Christian right. And I think that this is very strongly post-World War II into kind of the baby boomer generation, my own personal Jesus sort of heroic Christianity in which you are a soldier in God's army or you have a deep and personal connection to God and he has a mission for you in which people need to invent a conspiracy and a danger and an enemy. It's kind of like what we talked about with the TikTok trends last episode. And in reading Revelation, where they look at words like those who are deceived 
mm-hmm. they take that at face value and assume that that is going to be the tendrils in the new world order deceiving people into taking this thing that is going to damn them to hell forever. Yeah. You know, and as we've talked about with kind of Christo fascism in general, as it's sort of been on the rise in the last few years, fascism needs that heroic narrative. Mm hmm. And I'll go on record saying I don't think that that's all here in Left Behind. I think that there are pieces of it, but I don't think it's all there. But I do think that the potential for this to be used that way is absolutely there. Oh yeah, definitely. Like we've seen like these these books. Like even if it doesn't have all that, have enough building blocks where this helps build the Lego house of Christo fascism essentially because it's just one block, but it's being combined with other things within you know the Christian right that constructs this kind of weird behemoth that could lead us down like a very dark road. Yeah, and I want to say things that happen in later books and how they kind of color my perception on that, but I gotta keep my mouth shut. Right, well, more off the record. Right, exactly. So, given all that, how do you feel about the current climate because what I didn't read from that USA Today article um, and from another CNN article that I found is not only are there Republican National Committee members in multiple states referring to the mark of the beast, conflating it with Nazi Germany, uh, much in the same way that Tim LaHaye does, and calling for resistance to the COVID-19 vaccine on biblical grounds. Because notice these are politicians saying this, not pastors. In addition to that, there are nurses and other medical professionals saying we get the mark of the beast thing cited often as a reason why people are refusing the vaccine. Like it happened to Alex in Walmart. Like I think I talked about that on a prior episode. She overheard someone in Walmart saying they weren't getting the vaccine because it was the mark of the beast. I, as far as how that makes me feel, and we talked again about how, like, after, you know, the baby boomer generation, that personal Jesus is on the rise. It just makes me frightened of what Gen Zesus is going to look Ooh, like. Man, you just, you're on fire with coined phrases on this show. I just want you to know that. It's like, okay, because you have a generation like Gen Z, they're in this very, you know, bleak and alienated world. And you're given, like, you know, the last few decades of how weird iterations of Christianity, like, you know, the satanic panic QAnon and that how does that evolve even further among um, a group of people living in one of the most like isolated generations that like I can even think of yeah it's a scary thought yeah it's almost enough and I don't know if I've ever said this on the show it's almost enough to make you regret the bible being translated into english like it, it should have just been stayed to the Catholics. Right, you should have just let the priest class handle it. Let the ones who spend their lives studying it just dish it out, you know. And I, <laughs> and I'm joking, obviously, <laughs> but that was the reason why a lot of people, you know, back in you know the 1400s and the 1500s, you know, where that was a movement, you know, right. early Protestant Reformation, things like that, would have said, no, 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 don't let the hoi polloi read the Bible, right? Because like, they're not gonna get it. Because we've spent our entire lives in prayer and thought and contemplation and debate and discussion about the specifics of this one book. It is our entire life. We get it. They don't. Right. And they would have seen it akin to being like, don't let Greg from across the street perform surgery on you. He didn't go to school for that. He works at the used car place. Right. 
And, like, I've had that thought before, too. And, like, of course, like, I've been with me and you have said that in jest. But you gotta be careful about that because even the, oh, you know, the masses were not meant to have the Bible starts getting into some, like, weird dark enlightenment stuff where you have that, like, you know, those reactionaries that think everything that happened because of the Protestant Reformation and the Enlightenment were bad. Oh, yeah, yeah. It gets real return to monkey very fast. Yeah. Like, it gets reject modernity, embrace tradition very Fast. Yes. <laughs> no, and, and I get it. Like I'm and of course, like like you said, we're not saying this with any amount of seriousness, but when you see the hyper late capitalist, hyper individualized, sort of neoliberal capitalism version of own personal Jesus. Yeah. Build a bear but for Jesus. Build a bear but for Jesus. Exactly. When you see that and how much it takes hold in people and it causes these specific strains of toxic belief to occur, it is enough to kind of make you go, okay, maybe this was a mistake. Mm -hmm. (laughs) And I was, I'm going to quote somebody else, another listener that we talked to like literally hours ago um, of saying, if you go personal Jesus for long enough under capitalism, all that's ever going to get taught is Patriot gospel and prosperity gospel. And I think we're there Mm -hmm. when you empower people that they have a personal relationship with God and that they can know the mind of God on that deep of a level and that God literally cares about their small business in which they sell pool cleaning supplies. And if they go to church and give the right amount of money that he is going to bless them, like he blessed the old Testament patriarchs that it's a bad mix. dude. Yeah. Like it's bleach and ammonia. Mm. You know, you don't want to mix those together. So you got any final thoughts about the mark, buddy? Uh, I feel like we've been rambling a lot on this, but I feel like this is stuff we've been holding back on because we had to get through the plot of this book. Some of the guillotine puns landed all right. They weren't half bad. Yeah, they weren't half bad. Yeah, they really came down hard. (laughs) Really made my head spin with a few of them, but. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I just kind of lost my head over a few of them. Right. They're really sharp. Yeah. (laughs) All right. So it wouldn't be an off the record if we did not Take a couple of minutes, sum up our thoughts about the book itself, and give it a rating of Horseman out of four. So I'm going to let you, as always, kick us off. All right. So uh, I, I haven't made it um, uh, a secret through these three epi- last three episodes. I like this book decently. It was all right. And as far as a rating, like the only thing really I'm going to have to take off any points for is the fact that the ending kind of farted. Uh, they could have like, <laughs> they could have rearranged it a little bit to have, you know, the, the whole, the major guillotine moment happen at the very end and put some of, uh, the other stuff, uh, just before that. So I'm going to give it 3.5 horsemen out of four. Okay. All right. So this is pretty up there for you. Then. Yeah. Uh, the only reason I'm not putting up there is sat Cause like up until we got on mic, I was going to give it a four, but I decided, you know what? I'm going to take off a little bit because it could have done just a tad better. Okay. Um, I agree with you. I don't think that the ending landed. And I said that last episode, I feel like we could have rearranged some events and some characters and the ending would have been better. I cannot go to 3.5 because for the moments that worked for you, I don't think they hit as hard for me. Okay. I saw what they were doing. Uh, You've heard me kind of level my nitpicks about this, but those nitpicks kind of spiraled out into some larger structural problems 
that made me enjoy things that I wanted to enjoy less. Gotcha. Okay. Um, Nikolai being one of them, the way that the mark is explained and implemented. Um, there are some good things. I think the uh, the Chang stuff is really good. Yeah. You know, the reading aside and some of the with the accent. I think that Chang's dilemma, I guess is the best way we can put it. Yeah. Is an interesting one. And I think it's an element brought into the world that is interesting. Um, it's enough that I'm going to put that in there as a 0.5 on top of my score. But Nikolai didn't do it for me. The evil plan didn't do it for me. Even all the guillotine stuff didn't totally do it for me. And the ending certainly didn't. Okay. I feel like characters that we like even a little didn't get to do much. Okay. And characters that we've been with for a long time ended up kind of acting out of character at some points. I think Buck was really just sort of like there. He was yeah, very passive. You know, he's not the the take charge hero that he used to be. I feel like they're kind of losing their grip on the original characters in favor of trying to write newer characters and it doesn't always work. I get that. So with all that kind of mixed together, I got to go with a 2. Oh, wow. Okay. So this is a quite noticeable difference. Yeah, we got a whole one horseman difference here. Okay. But yeah, I it got tedious for me, so I'm going to say 2.5. Okay. That's going to take us through our rating. We are at the end of book eight, and we are about to move into book nine, and the title says it all. And here now, I'm going to read you the plot summary of Desecration, Antichrist Takes the Throne. Believers in Jerusalem must flee or take the mark of the beast. Nikolai Carpathia, no longer pretending to be a pacifist, has ordered every morale monitor armed as he prepares to travel along the Via Della Rosa and onward to the temple, where the shocking surprises await. The lines are drawn between good and evil as God inflicts the first bold judgment upon the flesh of those who have taken the mark, while his chosen ones flee into the wilderness. All right. So how do you feel moving on into book nine? We're really rounding third base here. You can see the end in sight. I am. I'm excited because like the whole angle of fleeing into the wilderness and having people have to like trek through the desert is something that I have wanted since book one. I'm like, all right, like we're full blown back into modern Old Testament fan fiction. Essentially. Oh, yeah. So that's uh, that's what that's what that's why I'm excited. We for. even got our own Moses. Yeah. So. Thank you guys, as always, for joining us on another Off the Record here on I Survive the Rapture. We're going to get into book nine next time. But until then, I'm Shane Bazell. And I'm Gavin Russell. And remember, don't start your name with a bunch of Roman numerals. <laughs> Bye. Bye. Okay, that's our show. Please make sure to subscribe wherever you get your podcasts and be sure to follow us on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram, all at Rapture Podcast. I Survived the Rapture is part of the IndieSaurus Podcast Network. For more great shows and to join the conversation, please visit IndieSaurus.com and check out the IndieSaurus Discord. We'll see you there, and thanks for listening. He can tempt you and leave.